I said, well, I'm going to call, see Sam Walton. You know, who else am I going to see? <laughs> so, I, so I called down to Bettendale, and they said, Mr. Walton's not taking appointments for a while. I drive down there anyway. I find out if he's going to be in that day. The lady said, yeah, he's going to be here all day. And I sit by the bathroom door. There's a, there's a place to sit. Everybody's got to pee. So I figured, okay. <laughs> so I sit there and he come, I can see him come out. I you know, got a picture of what he looked like. And I said, Mr. Walton, I've tried to set up a meeting with you. I would like five minutes of your time. And he looks at me and says, I'll be right out. Comes out, says, okay, you get five minutes. You're a persistent person. <laughs> so I tell, my, I tell him my idea. And he looks at me and says, nobody's ever approached me with this idea. He says, what do you think the land's worth? And I said, well, Mr. Walton, I grew up in Nebraska. You're, you know, you, you grew up in Missouri. You know, we're all farmers out here. The value of the ocean is what the farmer thinks is worth. And he looked at me and said, okay, I want $65,000 and Walmart pays no commission. I said, okay, thank you. If you work hard and you work smart, you will be successful says my guest, Mike Steinberg, on this episode of Renee Vidal sharing stories of peak performance. President of real estate powerhouse, the Steinberg Group, Mike Steinberg is one of the most successful entrepreneurs of our time, known for his relentless energy, competitive spirit, and endless generosity. In our conversation, Mike talks about the power of mentorship, his tennis exploits, and why everyone needs persistence to make big things happen whether it's on the court or in the corner office. For actionable tips on this episode, check out ReneeVidal.com. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay. Michael Steinberg, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you. Good morning to you and uh, let's roll. What was your mindset as a child? I mean, could you foresee becoming one of the most successful real estate developers in the world? You know, as a, as a kid, I was uh, as um, I was husky. That's what every size I got was husky, and I was self conscious of myself. And it was interesting that I always uh, thought of myself as kind of shy and awkward growing up. But I was always an, an inquisitive kid, you know. And I used to drive people crazy because, uh, as my grandfather said, "You're asking too many questions." But <laughs> asking all these questions and. And, you know, I just, it was a uh, interesting childhood growing up. I had no idea. I thought, you know, I had a great childhood, you know, until 13, we'll talk about that. But my dad was a very uh, big disciplinarian. And, you know, he taught us, he taught us that you need to have structure and you need to do something. You know, we had, everybody had chores and everybody, I, I hated, um, tr um, what is it, on the curb, I forget what we called it. You know, trimming up the curb with these, that's a little thing you raked along. And I thought, why are we doing that? Who cares what the curb looks like? But we didn't have a very big house, but my dad was, that was what he, you know, he was shoveled, shoveled the snow growing up in Omaha. And I mean, I had, a, I thought, you know, we had no money, but I thought um, that we were rich. I thought, you know, hell, you know, we were, we had everything. We had two cars. What else do you need? You know, and, <laughs> you know a 1400 square foot house that I thought was a palace. And, you know, we only had two bathrooms, but who, you know, one for my parents and one for uh, four kids. So who, who, who would know any different, you know? So what was the culture in your house growing up? What was that like? 
It was uh, very disciplinarian. Um, we had, we, you know, we went to services all the time. We believed, you know, we, we kind of grew up, you know, that we went to the synagogue on Friday nights and we went to Saturday morning services and, you know, be very respectful for, you know, your, uh, you know, I said, you always call someone sir and ma'am and by their last name. And, um, it was, you know, it was a nice childhood. We had one TV. It was a black and white TV. I remember it was in the living room and it had the little ears on it. And you got stations two, uh, two, six, and seven. And uh, that was it. And, you know, I mean, we were happy with that. I mean, we thought, and, you know, I had my friends or neighbors, and we played outside all the time. And, you know, it was a nice childhood, especially growing up in Omaha. When did you start playing tennis? You know, I started playing tennis probably when I was about 13 or 14 years old. My dad had died. And uh, my mom started playing because she needed something to, you know, have a social relationship. And, and so she figured, you know, she'd play tennis and meet people. So, um, you know, I remember going out on the tennis court. I was, I was horrendous. I mean, it was embarrassing. <laughs> uh, so, but what I did was, and this is an early thing, is I started hitting it. We had a, a back, in our backyard, we had this wall. That was um, it was kind of interesting because the first eight foot up was a not, it was a block, and then we had kind of a siding and over my bed my bedroom my original bedroom was there, and I would just sit out there on this little patio and hit tennis balls for hours, because I was I was determined not to be that dorky fat little kid that could not hit a tennis ball, and um, and and I started I started winning beating myself so it was good. <laughs> you know, it's like, I so, and then I started playing with a couple of my friends on, you know, public courts. And then uh, they opened uh, Dewey. It was called Dewey Courts on in Omaha. Uh, it was kind of a nice, probably eight or 10 courts. And it was, uh, you know, I went down there and then they, and then they opened when I was 14 or 15, they opened the first indoor court. I got, I, I don't, rem I remember what it was, but I don't remember the neighborhood. And there was three courts. And I remember how dimly lit they were. But, you know, I started becoming pretty good. And then, uh, you know, in high school, I played tennis. And, you know, I was uh, the uh, uh, doubles champion. And uh, I came in like third and stayed on singles. And I thought I was really pretty good. But <laughs> I wasn't that good. But, I, you know, I played in the Missouri Valley here, you know, at uh, Dwight Davis. And I thought I was really good at I, I wasn't that good, but I played a little at Arizona State. You know, I mean, I could have been a lot better if I would have taken it more seriously. But when you have no money, you need to work and you need to get through college. And, you know, it wasn't like a, a social hour. I wasn't good enough. To, they didn't have tennis scholarships back then. So, but I thought it was pretty good. And I was not bad. You know, I mean, you know, I, you know, I thought it was good because I had I could hit the wood racket. <laughs> you know, that, oh, that, that takes a lot more skill than today. Yes. And I remember when the metal rackets came out and people, and I wouldn't change because I thought that was like cheating. You know, <laughs> I thought, well, here, now these people, you know, the T, what was it that Jimmy Connors played with the T something? The T2000. The T2000, right. So here's this guy and I'm watching him. I mean, he's killing the ball because the sweet spot was so much bigger. And here I'm hitting on the wood racket and I'm thinking, okay, 
So I, I bought a I bought a, a a metal racket. I remember, you know, it cost like thirty nine dollars, which was a lot of money. I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> like a five hundred dollar racket today, and 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 it was amazing how it improved my game. But I always had that love hate relationship with tennis. I'd get out there, and I was so wanting to win so badly. When I hit a bad shot, I would throw my racket. I'd smash it on the ground. I'd yell at myself. Cause I knew I could be better. I knew where the shot was going. I just couldn't always get there. Cause I was not, I didn't have the great first step. And in tennis, you need to have the great first step. What were some of the, the positive attributes that, that you learned as a competitor, as an athlete that you think continue to serve you well today as a CEO? You know, you just can't quit. You just, you know, you got to practice. You got to show up and practice. And, you know, if you want to get good, you have to practice. I didn't have a lot of natural ability. And I know that. Um, and, you know, and, but, you know, I was good at doubles because I understood the strategy. I understood, you know, and uh, it's hard playing with someone because, you know, when they miss a shot, I used to say, really? <laughs> really? You missed that shot? <laughs> but sometimes you just have to shut up and, and do it. And then when you miss, you say to yourself, really, you know, so, <laughs> you know, you learn, you learn teamwork, you know, tennis, they say, isn't a team sport, but when you play doubles, it is. As a leader today, when, when your team members are metaphorically missing shots, are you still saying really? I do sometimes, <laughs> I've learned, but I also learned that, you know, we have team meetings and I will call people out nicely, you know, because they need to be, you know, called out. If, but if they do something nice in a positive way, call them out too. And so, you know, I don't say really anymore. I, I do. I actually do say that. But I ask them why they did that, why they didn't see the shot. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just interesting. You know, I mean, tennis was great. Um, it, you know, it, it taught you discipline. and It taught you, you know, drills and things like that. And I think any sport teaches that. I thought I was going to be a baseball player and I, I could hit, but I couldn't field. So, I mean, but I, I, I remember my childhood. We played a lot of football outside with the guys. Just, you know, we, did, we rode our bikes there. And it was just, it, you know, it, it taught you teamwork. Whatever it did, it taught you how to get along with people because you're only as good as the team. There's so much there. And you, you mentioned Arizona State. And I want to, I want to go back to, how a guy chooses Arizona State over Stanford. <laughs> that's, that's very interesting. Um, but maybe we can back up to some of the early lessons you learned from your dad and maybe a few other mentors, because I know how important mentorship uh, is to you and has played such a big role I mean, in your life. I mean, it really, really has been, you know, I am, you know, people say, you know, they're lucky this, but I have been blessed to have people that have taken an interest in me in a positive way, in a very, very positive way. And um, I remember early on, you know, my dad was a tremendous role model, smart, smart, smart. Everybody loved this guy. I mean, there was nobody that didn't have the respect and love, and, but he was so strict, you know, and he used to call his young man, young lady, you know, and uh, but he taught us discipline. He said, you know, you know, and he, he always said, if you tell someone something, do it. Nothing, their word is your bond. And I mean, he said that a thousand times, if not a million. And he and he and always made it sound that 
if you do a good job, you'll get paid. Don't worry about the money. The mm-hmm. money will come. And he kept saying that. And, you know, you know, the story about the red coat and how I wanted this red coat. But, you know, he taught me that people are partners. People need to respect what you have. You know, he gave me five dollars for my work. And then he said the three dollars is for a part. You know, we're partners and the two dollars is for Sadaka charity. He instilled in us that you got to remember how you got there. So he was a very, very good influence to me. And I never, I'll never forget, I was, I used to bolt in a league on, I think, Tuesdays or Thursdays. I forget. I take my little bowling ball and walk down from our house to uh, the bowling alley, the West Lanes, it was called, on uh, 72nd. And, uh, you know, this was really a treat. I mean, the lane, I think it cost 10 cents a, 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 a game. And, uh, you know, we had to earn it. And I, I had to buy my own bowling ball. And, you know, I mean, I got a used one. And I was pretty good at uh, 10 or 11 years old. And I'll never forget what someone said to me. You know, I was, and, and I was telling people how good I was. And I don't remember the gentleman's name. He put his arm around me and says, look, we know you're a good bowler. Everybody knows it. You don't have to tell people. When you tell people, you diminish yourself. So check check what you're doing. And, and, and it's always stuck with me. You know, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I am a self promoter, but not egotistical. I don't have to tell people, Hey, I got this or I got that to make myself. I just want them to understand the good I've done or the things I've done. And when I hear people taking credit for things that they never did, that's the only time I say something, you know, I am um, the other day, I built the uh, levy in Chesterfield and it's of 2,000 levies, it's the number one levy in the United States. I'm pretty proud of that fact. You know, of 2,000 that, uh, you know, FEMA's looked at, we, we were on the, the award. And we had this, all this rain we've had, we have no flooding. So a friend of mine was at breakfast and overheard a conversation from the city manager in Chesterfield taking credit for the levy. Now, I, say, I called him up and I said, hey, dude, don't take credit for this levy. I said, we worked on it together, yes, but this wasn't your idea. And that's the only time I want to tell people when I hear things like that. I don't have to tell anybody. You know, people understand. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I just, I, I guess the question, the thing I always tell people is don't marginalize what I've done. I'm not looking for, you know, I don't need a hug. I don't need, you know, thank yous all. But, you know, so that, that guy, when I was 10 or 11 years old, whoever it was who put his arm around me said, we know you're a good bowler, you know, um, and, you know, fat kids can bowl. So it wasn't like an athletic deal. And uh, <laughs> it was really, it was really, really uh, a good lesson. And then, you know, when my dad died, I had someone named Melvin Freeman, Jerry Freeman. He stepped up and he didn't have to step up. You know, he says, look, it, I know this is a tough time. I'm, I'm 13 years old. And, you know, he took me in. He said, look, I'm going to pick you up. I know you're, I know you're, you're, you want to be a baseball player. You're not that good. I could hit. Okay. But he took, he took interest in me. And other people took interest with me. The, the school super principal at Westside High School took interest in me. So, I mean, people took interest and, you know, it, it was nice. And uh, there was a college professor at Arizona State that really took interest in me and said, you could be more than you think you can be. And he'd push me, you know, and that's, you know, you don't forget things like that. So, I mean, I've had a lot of good people, probably more than I should in my <laughs> life, have taken interest. And, you know, um, 
I, I think that the most important thing in, in my life is I listen to the feedback. You got to listen to feedback. And, and if someone tells you something, maybe, maybe they're right and you should listen. And I remember some people. So I'm in my first two years at um, real estate, Leo Eisenberg and company in Kansas city. I made $2,290 the first year and I'm working a job getting <laughs> tables and I'm not doing well. The second year I make $7,900. So this guy who is a blessed memory, Gray Turner, says to me, come in here. He says, you have more potential than anybody I know, by far. You're smarter than anybody I know. You outwork everybody by me. And you've got all the attributes, but you have one problem. He said, shut up and listen. Just shut up and listen. You're, you're, you want to tell everybody. And he, and he said, and that reminded me of the guy at the bowling alley. Okay, so so the next year I shut up and listened, and I made a hundred thousand dollars. This is nineteen seventy eight, you know. And uh, I mean, the world it changed. But, but here's a guy who had no benefit. He just said, "Shut up and listen." He he takes me to meetings, and he says, "Do not say one word. Do not say one word." You know how hard, hard that is for someone who likes to talk. <laughs> and, so he's. Uh, so you, you moved to Kansas City, you launched your career. The first couple of years, you were struggling. You were not having fun no. with, a capi- with a capital F. Can you take us from there with your, your initial real home run or ace with McDonald's and kind of walk us through that? Sure. So, you know, here I am. You know, it's the third year. I've learned how to shut up. And I have a wild idea. It's a Sunday morning, and I'm sure I was out the night before having a couple drinks with my buddies and doing what any 23 or 24-year-old kid would be doing. And I woke up thinking, what am I going to do to move the needle? I mean, you know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but I got to I gotta think about this. So I, uh, I'm looking through the Yelp pages back then, you know, those great yellow pages. And I looked there and I said, I come, somehow I opened it to restaurants. It just kind of opened to restaurants. So I'm looking through them and I get to McDonald's and they have like nine or 10 locations. And then I get to Burger King, they have two. I get to Taco Bell, they have one. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to call the McDonald's guy. They got 10, maybe they need more. You know, it's just, just a fluke idea. I have these crazy ideas and I don't know why, so... Uh, Monday morning comes, it's eight o'clock, and I figure out that the uh, regional headquarters is in St. Louis, a guy named Webb Leslie. So I said, um, so I call down there and I said, I'd like to talk to head of real estate. And he says, I am the head of real estate. My name is H. Webb Leslie, just like Robin Williams. That's how he talked. That's how he acted. <laughs> and he said, uh, he says to me, the first thing he says is, so um, not, do you want to do my deals? He says, how many restaurant deals have you ever done? I said, none. He said, well, at least you can tell the truth. I said, well, good. He said, uh, what are you doing for lunch at 1230? Now, I'm in Kansas City. I've never been. I've been to St. Louis one or two times. My sister went to watch you. You know, I mean, this is like <laughs> I know where I'm going. There's no GPS. And he says, I'll see you at 1230 and don't be late. So I drive and they're at 270 in Manchester at the federal, whatever they were called, the savings and loan. It's still there in the building. And I get there at 1225. And there he is at the bottom of the elevator with his watch like this, 
well, at least you can show up on time too. <laughs> so he takes me up to his office and we have this, you know, he brings lunch in. Of course, it's McDonald's lunch. You know, God forbid. <laughs> Actually, I like McDonald's. I used to eat it all the time. And we have a great lunch. He says, you know, I, I like you. And you passed the interview. I said, well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Blessley. No, H. Webb. Just call me H. Webb. Okay. So he says, I'm going to send you to Red Oak, Iowa. I said, okay. He says, McDonald's, want, here's the four corners that uh, we want to be on. But he forgot to tell me he'd been up there for two years trying to find a site. And they picked Red Oak, Iowa as one of those test markets for small towns for McDonald's. So I go up there and I'm not doing well. So I finally convinced the lady on the corner had a house to sell her house to McDonald's. She had told my friend, Mr. Blessley, no, a million times. But I just, you know, I'm from Omaha, this Red Oak is 60 miles away, we're, you know, <laughs> Kumbaya. So I get her to sign a contract. I think, hell, I just hit it out of the park. I'm going to get this guy's business. I come down, I drive back down, because I really believe, my dad always told me, you can't put a pencil to the phone. You got to show up, look at people. You know, the phones are great. Just show up and be there. So I drive down. And now from Kansas City to St. Louis, I get in the car. I drive down and take the contract. I'm as proud. I got the peacock, my you know, coats you know, like this. <laughs> and he looks at me and says, well, you made one mistake. I'm thinking, okay, I paid too much. You know, I, I'm in the parameters you told me. He says, we only use McDonald's contracts. I said, oh, my God. I didn't ask the question. I go back and see this lady and explain to her that we have to put it on the McDonald's contract. You know, and she says, well, who's going to pay my attorney to redraft it? Now the commission's going to be about $2,000. And she tells me it's $1,500 <laughs> to redraft this contract. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I will pay for it. I'll pay for it. I mean, what am I going to do? So I get it signed. And the floodgates open. Bless Page Webb said, Mike, you're the man. You now have all of Omaha to work on. You have Kansas City to work on. And you have the state of Missouri, half the state to Columbia, Illinois, Columbia, Missouri to work on. And you might work on Kansas. I mean, it was like letting a kid in the candy store. You know, <laughs> and um, so um, the greatest thing that happened was I was up in uh, Excelsior Springs, Missouri is out north of Liberty, and I'm trying to find a site for McDonald's. I'm looking around, I'm looking around, and, and I have this idea. There's a, there's a Walmart that has this huge parking lot. I can't find anything else. I said, I mean, well, how? I find out who owns the ground. It's Walmart who owns the building and land, uh, which was atypical back then. So I said, well, I'm going to call, see Sam Walton. You know, who else am I going to see? <laughs> so, I, so I called down to Bentonville and they said, Mr. Walton's not taking appointments for a while. I drive down there anyway. I find out if he's going to be in that day. The lady said, yeah, he's going to be here all day. And I sit by the bathroom door. There's a, there's a place to sit. Everybody's got to pee. So I figured, okay. <laughs> so I sit there and he come, I can see him come out. I you know, got a picture of what he looked like. And I said, Mr. Walton, I've tried to set up a meeting with you. I would like five minutes of your time. And he looks at me and says, I'll be right out. Comes out, says, okay, you get five minutes. You're a persistent person. 
<laughs> so I tell my I tell him my idea, and he looks at me and says, "Nobody's ever approached me with this idea." He says, "What do you think the land's worth?" And I said, "Well, Mr. Walton, I grew up in Nebraska. You're you know you you grew up." In Missouri, you know, we're all farmers out here. The value of the oats is what the farmer thinks it's worth. And he looked at me and said, okay, I want $65,000 and Walmart pays no commission. I said, okay, thank you. He's, and he thinks I'm going to be done, you know, because this is probably ten dollars to $15,000 more. We talk about the size. And, you know, I said, I'm, uh, I said, my five minutes is up, which turned to 10 minutes and I leave. I go back and I call you know h web i said okay here's the deal he says you know what we're gonna do we're gonna get in the, get you into walmart mcdonald's is gonna get into walmart we're gonna pay him seventy thousand dollars and i'm gonna pay your commission now this was unheard of having a company pay a broker's commission they just didn't do that i get the contract prepared i'm smart this time i put it on the mcdonald's form i drive it down there and i present it to sam walton and he looks at me and he says, well, this is more than I asked and they're paying the commission. I said, yes, sir, I want to exceed your expectations. And he said, mm -hmm. okay. So we go back and forth and he signs the contract and we close. So they didn't have any drinks back then in Bentonville, you know, it was a teetotal town. And uh, I drive back down with flowers and candy. <laughs> and, he, and he says, and he looks up and he says, it's you again? I said, yes, sir, I just want to thank you. I just want to tell you, thank you for the opportunity. And I hope we have an opportunity to do some business again. And, and then he says, don't move. And he yells to a guy named Tom C. And I hear him yelling there. You know, they have this, this really small office. He says, come in here, meet your new developer, Mike Steinberg. <laughs> I mean, was that the luckiest thing ever? I mean, the luckiest. And so I did probably 200 Walmart transactions and the only thing I regret is Sam Walton sent me a letter and he had it typed up and he crossed out my, you know, how they put through, you know, my, dear Mr. Steinberg, he put Michael. And at the bottom, he says, you are going to be one of the most successful businessmen because you don't quit. And of course, I didn't keep the letter. You know, I thought, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, my, that's my biggest regret. And you know what? I ended up doing a lot of Walmart deals and uh, uh, I had some, I tell you what, the greatest experience, but from going to McDonald's, I did the Godfather pizza deals, I did the Taco Bell deals, I did the Pearl Dish deals, I did the Payless shoe deals. I was on a roll. So it was really, and that's how I met a lot of people in my life. But uh, All because you acted on an idea. Right. I took an idea and I showed up on time and I actually did something. And I, and I think someone, you know, people think, you know, it's not, it's not doing the deal. But thinking, you know, I, I drove down there. This, you know, this was a four-hour drive. You know, people thought I was crazy. They, and my guys in my office, you know, you're going to go take flowers? Well, just send them. No. I want to thank I want to shake the guy's hand and look at him and thank him. And I did. And that turned into a, a bonanza. You know, who would have known? Who would have thought? As a leader and entrepreneur, what drives you? You know, that's, that's a good question. You know, I just, I guess I'm driven because I don't want to fail. I don't, I, it's not, I, I don't, it's not that I want more success. I just don't want to fail. <laughs> I just, I've been there. You know, the curve is kind of high. 
you know, and I, <laughs> I'm like, I've been as low as you can be, you know, when, when you have no money and you're at 13, 14, 13, 14 years old working at the grocery store, bagging groceries, and hoping that you have enough money to get the bus, put money and food on the table. It's not a lot of fun. And I always said to myself, if I, if I work hard, and I work smart. I will be successful. I didn't like edging. That was the word I was looking for earlier, edging. I, and, you know, I, I hated all that stuff. I, I knew that. And, you know, when I was 16 years old, they had a, or 17 years old, they had a, a, a tornado that went through um, Omaha. I was a brick tender. Now, I didn't work 40 hours a week. I worked 80 hours a week because they were paying me double in cash. So, I mean, I wanted to get out of the straits I was in. And I didn't feel bad about it. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't have a father or we don't have any money or we don't have this. That was okay. You know, we all, we all get to decide what we want to do. Is it fear of failing your own expectations or that of potentially failing others' expectations no, my own, of you? My own, my own. You know, people look at me and I'm, I don't, you know, a lot of people are t intimidated. They're, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with that. I really am. But I'm, I'm most proud that I can sit here and know I've done the right thing. And I try to do the right thing. And I always say to myself, how would I want to be treated in this situation? And I've made dumb decisions, but I've always given the people their money back. I remember a guy said to me, well, you told me we're going to get this. And I said, you know what? You're right. Here's your money back. I, I just remember my dad say, do the right thing. Your words are bond. Just do the right thing and not make an excuse. And, you know, I remember, I'll tell you a funny story. I was uh, nine years old. The crossroads were across the street from us. And I took a candy bar. I knew it was the wrong thing. I knew it was the wrong thing. So I went back to the Woolworth store a couple of days later. And the uh, manager says to me, young man, you took that candy bar, didn't you? I said, I did. He said, I have two choices for you. I can call your parents because I know them. Or... <laughs> We can get the money back and figure out how we're going to make this right. And I said, for that, I have an hour's worth of cleanup I need done. So when you pay me back, I need an hour's worth of cleanup. You know, so that taught me early on. Okay. You know, I knew it was wrong. I didn't think everybody was watching. I just put it in my pocket. You know, they didn't Ma have Michael, how do you define leadership? You know, I define leadership as something in empowering people so that they want to move forward in the same direction as you. It's pretty simple. You know, I tell people, you know, I, I talk to people about, you know, the process and procedures, expectations, and what does success look like? Leaders need to tell people what success looks like. Most people will tell you, we're successful if we make money. No, I don't believe that. It's more than making money. It's a whole bunch of social factors, being good to your community, being good to your teammates. You know, that's to me leadership. It's not, there's nothing fancy. I mean, I, 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 lead, I, re, I work with my sleeves, I say it, and put my ego and my emotions on my sleeves. I tell people, this isn't, sometimes I probably shouldn't, but that's okay. That's just how I lead. You know, and, and what I'm most proud of is I have people that have been with me 25 to 35 years. And I have people that are still my good friends. I've, I've alienated, yes, because I just tell people how I feel. And a lot of people don't like feedback. I'm, I'm personally, 
give me the feedback. And you know what I always tell people, a man that can't change his mind has no mind. <laughs> I mean, really, you got to be, you know, if someone says, you know, as my friend Greg Turner said, shut up and listen. Okay. If he wouldn't have told me that, I'm not sure I'd be where I am today. And so I've been able to have probably 20 people like that in my life, 20 people. And I'm lucky. I'm the luckiest guy for that. I mean, really, you know, and uh, I know we have to go because our 30 minutes is getting to the end. here. <laughs> but, you know, people say to me, well, how could you be partners with Stan Kroenke? If you walked in the door right now, I'd say, thank you. I learned a lot. Now, there's things I didn't like. Of course, in any relationship, there's things you like. But, you know, I learned a lot, yin and yang. And so I, that's how I consider leadership, learning from other people and imparting that learning to, you, to someone else. You know, you're a tennis coach. You're trying to teach these kids not how to play tennis, but to think about things differently. You know, either you have it or don't. I mean, you can do the drill. No, really, I, I know that. I mean, you know, I could have practiced another 10 years every day and would never have gotten to Jimmy Connors level. It's just, do you have it or not? Now, what I did have was like the Michael Jordan, I willed myself to do things. You got to will yourself to do it and get yourself mentally prepared. And that's what I, and that's what I do here. I get myself mentally prepared, but I also expound how I feel and it gets it out of me. So then I can move on. It's not, that's just how I handle, I don't let it build up and I'll just yell at myself or someone else and then I feel better, but it's not personal. So I have I one know. I have one more question, Michael. What's your methodology for building great teams? You know, I'll tell you this, I have a weakness and my weakness is this. I'm good for the first 10 to 15 people. After that, I really don't like to lead people. I'm honestly, you know, one of the things I know that is a great leader and a great team builder is knowing your weaknesses. And I know what I like to do, what I'm good at. I can do it. No, I really can. But I, but I, but I, but I, but I struggle. I really struggle on that. I really struggle on that whole thing. And I, and it's like, it's like going to city councils. I don't like, I don't like politics. I'm like, but hold on. I know how to do it if I have to, but I'd rather send someone else to articulate that. And then I can follow up. You know, I don't need to be the face and, you know, I, that's, you know, so everybody knows what they like to do and not do. And good leaders know that. And I also, as a good leader, I want to have someone smarter than me in the room. I hire smarter people. I want to build a great team. I want people that are smarter than me. There's a difference between leading a successful boutique firm, which is what you've been doing right. your entire career and running GE you know, or, or running Microsoft. Yeah. I wouldn't be good at that, you know, <laughs> but that's, but that's a whole discipline. You know, I'm not into the politics. I'm not in you know, the corporate things. I watched Walmart grow from a small little company to a big company. What I always am amazed with is that the people that at Walmart thought they were good. They're only good because of Walmart, because of Sam Walmart. They left Walmart. Very few people were successful. I can say that people who worked with me and my little boutique firm leave, they are successful. Okay, so. To, to close, Michael, I want to thank you, not only for your generosity, but 
more importantly for your honesty, because I think through this conversation, we can see how telling the truth yields real benefits personally and obviously professionally. And um, you're a great role model. I'm well, really thank grateful you. for you. Well, thank you. You know, and the last thing I'll tell you, I was thinking about it yesterday. And what my greatest joy is today is reverse mentoring. <laughs> you know, at taking kids because they're teaching me. They don't realize it, but they're teaching me. And I had a young man in here for half an hour yesterday. And he says, so what do you think? I said, it's great having reverse mentoring. You know, you don't realize you're mentoring me. So we'll pick <laughs> this up again. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. It's good I'll to be to with you. you. Okay, bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed listening to Renee Vidal sharing stories of peak performance. Remember to listen, watch, subscribe, and review anywhere you get podcasts. Keep dominating on and off the court.